One person's trash is another person's treasure. What if the food that you throw in the bin is something that other people in your community value? So Olio is an app that exists to tackle the enormous problem of waste in our homes and also local communities. And we do that by connecting people with their neighbours so they can give away, run, throw away their spare food and other household items. This is Tessa Clark, co-founder and CEO of Olio, the UK-based company that has raised 53 million US dollars on a mission to feed people, not landfills. You simply check the app and can pick up some food for free. But how does that business model work? We also have 35,000 volunteers who we connect with local businesses and those volunteers will collect and redistribute unsold food from those businesses via the community, via the Olio community app at the end of the day. And so how it works is we will advertise that there is a collection slot available for a particular business location to our community of trained volunteers. And we then kind of match the right volunteer with the right business location. And on their allotted time and day, the volunteer will pop out of their house across the road. They will collect all of the unsold or unserved food from that business. They will take it home. They will add it to the app. Within minutes, the neighbours are requesting it and minutes later, the neighbours are popping around to pick it up. So that takes that food from having been considered a waste stream in the store to instead within, on average, an hour being fully redistributed into multiple homes in the local community. We have a proprietary food safety management system backed up by our HACCP. We also then have full end-to-end traceability because all of the food is redistributed via the Olio app so we can see what went to whom. And that also gives us the ability to feed back to our clients impact data so they know exactly how many meals have been given away, the carbon impact of that, the water impact of that, etc. This has been a very inspiring conversation on the psychology of food waste, the role of behavior change and the importance of community-driven business. I hope you'll enjoy it as much as I did. Let's jump right in. This is Red to Green the audiobook-style podcast where food tech meets sustainability. You're listening to Season 4 on Food Waste. To support our work, please subscribe and share the episodes with your colleagues and friends. I'm your host, Marina Schmidt. Quite interesting. I recently was talking to a friend of mine who lives in Portugal and she was describing that sometimes the retailers here make it extremely hard uh, for people to access the food waste. So meaning they lock it away, they call the police if somebody tries to get the food waste and some of them even spray the food waste with dangerous chemicals so people don't get the idea of stealing it (laughs) or saving it is the better word and then she asked me well why don't they donate it Uh, wouldn't that be simple and when I was talking to another friend of mine who is working for an, an NGO that picks up food from grocery chains she said one issue is that there isn't enough reliable volunteer power like especially if the store has to have the resources have somebody there receiving the volunteers and then they don't show up that they may come late or they don't pick everything up so i guess you're addressing that issue in a way right yeah no business wants to throw away food but 
they find themselves in a situation having to do this, unfortunately, because to date, there have been a number of barriers. In terms of the volunteer reliability, you're absolutely correct. A number of organisations work with the charitable sector and they do often struggle with mm. reliability of volunteers. Now, Olio's model is based around hyperlocal volunteering. So this is someone from the immediate local community. And we also very clearly track and monitor volunteer presence, I guess, if you like. And we have well over 90% pickup rates via our systems. So we've managed to kind of solve for all of those problems that have historically stood in the way and prevented businesses from redistributing surplus food. And then there's still the question of economic incentive, though, because I guess for some retailers, it seems like maybe the people who are now getting the food for pretty much free would have been customers beforehand. Have you encountered this argument? And what do you think about it? So we have not encountered the cannibalization argument, the the argument that these people would otherwise have come to my store to buy this food and instead they're now getting it via Olio. And the reason for that is because the quantities and the types of food that are coming onto the Olio app are completely unpredictable. And also the demand for the food is so strong that no one can guarantee that they're going to get what they request from the app. And so it's really impossible to do your weekly shop or even a top-up shop via the Olio app. The Olio app is much more about uh, spontaneous picking up of an item that, that takes your fancy. So the cannibalization issue isn't really an issue for us at all. Then the second aspect of economics is the costs, sort of how much does it cost to throw away food versus how much does it cost to save and redistribute the food via Olio. And at the moment, businesses are paying waste contractors to take that food off to landfill or at best anaerobic digestion. And instead, they're now paying Olio to ensure that, that food isn't wasted. And our costs through benchmarking surveys we've done with some of our clients are pretty much on par with the waste removal costs. But the massive benefit of using Olio is that you are no longer throwing away perfectly good food because food waste is starting to be seen in very much the same way that child labor has been seen in the fashion industry. It used to be endemic and is now being measured and monitored out of existence. The same is now happening with food waste in the food industry because customers are telling businesses that it is no longer acceptable for them to throw away perfectly good food. Employees are saying they don't want to be paid to have to throw away food every single day. So there's an enormous business case in terms of brand and reputation and also employee retention and morale. And that's why many businesses are now wanting to work with Olio to ensure that they achieve zero food waste stores. And the final part of the business case lies around businesses' ESG goals and also their net zero commitments. No food business is going to get to net zero when they mm. are continuing to throw away food at the scale that is currently happening. Totally. And it seems like in a way, like a guerrilla marketing hack, because your the number of food items listed each month on Olio skyrocketed from three hundred thousand to one point six million. That is that is an insane increase. So through the partnership with Tesco and their two thousand seven hundred UK stores, am I right? Yes. So last year was a major inflection point for Olio partly because we partnered with Tesco and we rolled out across all of their 2,700 stores, which resulted in an enormous amount of food coming into the app. And in parallel, obviously, the pandemic was underway. And so people were wanting to connect with their local community, which resulted in real hockey stick growth for Olio last year. 
Yeah. You stated in another interview that half of all food waste in the UK takes place in the home compared to yeah. only 2% at store level. And the UK is a bit different than many other surrounding countries in that case, because on the store level, it's particularly low. And in the home, it's rather large. It's about 700 pounds a year that an average family throws away. Why do you think that is the case? So people are always stunned when I tell them the half of all food waste takes place in the home and only 2% at retail store levels. That is super counterintuitive. Uh, and the reason for this is just simple maths. There are 28 million households in the UK throwing away roughly 20% in the weekly shop in comparison to 15,000 supermarkets throwing away half a percentage point. And the challenge that we have is lots of people in their homes think that what they do doesn't count. And so they might be throwing a couple of brown bananas in the bin thinking, well, what difference mm. does this make? Or a couple of slices of bread, what difference does this make? Well, 28 million other households doing the same thing that day. And you're correct, the UK does have a particularly large amount of waste at the household level. So it accounts for 50%. If you include waste at the farm gate as well, it accounts for 50% of all of food waste uh, in the UK. But it's actually remarkably similar to the vast majority of, you know, I hate the word, but developed countries, which all seem to be wasting anywhere between kind of 30 to 50% of food waste is taking place in the home. Yeah. And in your gold section in the Olio app, you do also help people with simple hacks to reduce their food waste. And four yeah. important practices that I came along in my research were to buy less impulsively. That usually means making a meal plan to keep an overview of their food, usually checking before going to the grocery store to cook more precisely and to use leftovers for cooking new meals. What other practices do you recommend people? So I have this sort of mantra in my mind of the five S's to help you reduce food waste in the home. The first one is to shop with a plan. The second one is to store things properly. So there are hundreds of food storage mm. tips and tricks that can help you prevent wasting food. Some of my favorite ones are to never store onions and potatoes together don't store tomatoes in the fridge. If you put a slice of onion in with an opened avocado, it can stop it from browning. There's no end of ways in which you can store your food properly. The third S is to serve sensible portion sizes. And a really easy hack here is to just serve up on smaller plates. <laughs> if you use smaller plates, you will waste less food. The fourth S is to save your leftovers. And this is really where both your fridge and your freezer become your friend. You can freeze pretty much anything. And it's a really, really great tool in that sort of war against food waste. And then the final S is to share. Share your spare with your neighbors. My theory is that fridges, instead of actually prolonging the, the life of food, they are at the same time also the dumpster of to be soon food waste. Because how many times do you see a fridge stocked with food in the back that has been there for many, many days and sometimes even weeks? And because I'm traveling at the moment... I do not have a fridge for the first time in my life. <laughs> and I'm surprised that I waste less food than I ever had. I do feel that it forces me to like eat things fresh and buy things that don't need refrigeration and just be very aware of what there is. So what are your insights on fridges and their influence on food waste? So uh, fridges are both a positive and a negative. So you are absolutely correct that many, many, many things 
die in the fridge. And what we've found is that it's really hard to balance the right supply of food with demand, what you want to eat in the home. And a lot of people, though, they will know for quite some time they're not really going to get around to eating that or they don't really want it. But they don't want to throw perfectly good food in the bin. So instead, they leave it in the fridge kind of hoping (laughs) that they will eat it someday. And then it turns into a moldy mess. And then they don't feel guilty throwing it in the bin because no one can eat that. So that is definitely a phenomenon. The flip side of that is that actually if you have cooked too much, which is what many of us do, then actually being able to save the leftovers in the fridge can really prevent that food from becoming waste. I think if I had sort of a wish, it would be that we actually had smaller fridges. Because if you have a big fridge, the temptation in there is to fill it with stuff. And the more you fill it, the harder it is to keep an eye on what's about to uh, expire and, and what isn't. So I do think fridges have a really important role to play, but they should probably be a lot smaller than they are nowadays. Interesting. Yeah, this it is a way of psychologically, like subconsciously making food waste less painful to one's own yeah. conscience. I'm wondering, pe- people tend to heavily underestimate how much food they waste, right? Yes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> it, it makes me laugh because I think there's a statistic that says something like 90% of people think that they're an above average driver, which yeah. clearly makes no sense at all. And the same applies to food waste. 90% of people think they waste less food than everybody else. I think it, it does come down to the fact that we're trying to kind of reconcile our instincts, which say we should not waste food because I depend upon it to live with our reality, which is that actually we are wasting an awful lot. Yeah. And that is connected to, in a way, social norms and how much people think is acceptable. Like, is it acceptable to throw a slightly mushy banana in the bin or not? And in my research, I came across the different campaign types, and some of them can be described as awareness campaigns of food waste is bad and you should be reducing that. And other campaigns which are considered to be more effective talk about norms and they try to change what is considered to be normal. So shifting the mindset from it's not normal to be wasting food, it's normal to be valuing food and doing everything you can to avoid throwing it in the bin. And in the UK, there was one campaign which is quite famous called Love Food, Hate Waste. And I would love to hear about what were your impressions of that campaign and how it maybe changed the way you feel people perceive food waste. So you're absolutely correct in that. And I've kind of gone deep on this whole behavioral psychology thing. Like, how can we get more people to share Mm -hmm. their food? And I've researched and researched and researched, and unfortunately, the simplest determinant as to whether people are going to change their behavior or not is whether they believe everyone else is doing that behavior. We are herd animals, and it is really, really critical that we create a culture and environment in which throwing away food is seen as socially unacceptable. You know, graffitiing, littering, smoking in front of children. You know, I mean, some of these things are illegal, but many of them are are kind of socially unacceptable as well. And so we've definitely got to get to that place with regards to food and food waste, because there is a danger that actually 
with a lot of the campaigning, which shows just how much food is wasted. On the one hand, it's horrifying, but then on the other hand, it normalizes mm. it, right? It says, well, actually, everybody else is doing this too. So there's a real kind of double-edged sword to that type of awareness campaign. But I think the other challenge in the food waste space that we have is that a lot of people think that food is natural and therefore when it's thrown away, it's just a natural organic matter that's sort of returning to the earth. And mm -hmm. unfortunately, that is just woefully simplistic because when you look at the environmental impact of food waste, roughly 90% of all of the carbon emissions of the food is what takes place before it gets to you in your home. And so then whether it ends up being composted or going off to landfill, that's only the remaining 10% of the carbon impact. And so the message that we're always trying to get across to people is just that we must not waste food because some people are now increasingly thinking, oh, well, if I compost it, that's okay. I mean, I've been really environmentally friendly. I compost my food. And yes, composting is better than landfill because it doesn't give off methane when it's composting, but you've still incurred 90% of that carbon footprint. And a lot of people are shocked to discover that a quarter of all of humanity's fresh water is used to grow food that's never eaten. A landmass larger than China is used to grow food that's never eaten. So that's all the deforestation that's gone alongside that, species driven into extinction, soil degradation, etc. So we have a lot of work to do to hammer home in people's minds that food waste is devastating for the climate because most people have not yet made that connection. Plastic, they think, is bad for the environment, but food waste, yeah, we haven't got there yet. Yeah, in South Korea, they have banned all food waste from landfills in 2005 and the city started this program where people have to pay for the food waste by weight yes. in 2013. And that's interesting because it counteracts this psychological fallacy of, oh, it's being composted, so it doesn't matter because it suddenly has a price and you need to pay for the food waste that you're creating, even though it's just a, a few bucks a month, it's enough to make people wear that it's not like I'm even doing something good for the yeah. environment, it you know, like it's like, oh, it. I'm just yeah. do donating the food to, <laughs> to the earth, you know? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I think it's very interesting, that model. I don't think it's been rolled out more broadly in other countries, mm. not that I'm aware of, but yeah, certainly very interesting. When you are looking into how to change consumer behavior or let's say people's behavior, were there any other things that you came across that you found quite surprising. I think that when you're working in the climate space, there is a very natural tendency to want to kind of scream from the top of the roofs that sort of the planet is on fire um, because there's just no shortage of terrifying information out there. But what we have discovered at Olio is that actually we use a bit of an 80-20 ratio roughly 80% of the content we share being really positive, optimistic. Here's the progress we've made. Here's some wonderful stories. And only 20% is, is that sort of telling of the truth, more mm -hmm. frightening stuff. And we found that that's the right balance because people respond much better to the positive and optimistic content. But we obviously can't be 100% that. We do need that sort of 20% to give some real credence to the optimistic content. Whenever we think about behavior change, Lots of people will ask us, sort of, who's your competitor? And they, they will mention people like Too Good To Go and Karma and stuff like that. And, and we say, no, they're, they're not our competitors. Our competitor is the rubbish bin, right? Mm. We have to provide a product that is as close to the bin as possible in terms of efficiency. 
more importantly, massively over-indexes versus the bin in terms of being social, feeling rewarding, sharing people's impact with them, connecting them to their community, making friendships for them. These are all things that their bin can't do. And we think that kind of to drive that behavior change, we've got to really, really lean into all that positive stuff around making people feel good about themselves. You know, when I sometimes talk to people about uh, climate issues, I get a common response of, okay, no, I've just I've just given up on humanity and it all doesn't matter. I'm just going to yeah. live my life to the fullest and then let it burn behind me. <laughs> In a way, I understand how this is appealing as a mindset and how it's enticing with all of the negative press that we hear day in and day out. And I wonder maybe, maybe encouraging people to change their behavior is again, such a community centered issue. Because if people's standards is, oh, if I change my behavior, it should change the whole issue. That's a very individualized view. And obviously, you feel helpless, because as an individual, you cannot do anything about it. But then it again comes down to shifting people's mindset from you're not an individual, you're part of a community. And if you with your community change just a bit of your behavior, you can actually make a difference. So there seems to be again, a connection to the community importance, also just psychologically. Yeah, so I'm super, super, super positive about the impact that we can have through individual actions, uh, precisely because the point that you make, which is that individual actions influence the people around us. And that's a really effective way to kind of scale up and have impact. I also, you know, I've battled with this myself as well. I go to great lengths to try and lead an increasingly sort of zero waste lifestyle. And it can be easy to think, well, what difference does this one thing make? But what I have discovered is that, you know, I, I now think of every single pound I spend as a vote and I, I can either vote for the status quo and we know where that's taking us kind of barreling off the cliff um, or I can take my pound and I can vote for a different and better future and what I have learned is that every time I kind of move my money and I make that vote for a better future and a thousand people ten thousand people a hundred thousand people are doing it you know we're a drop in the ocean out of millions but we are sending data back up to those organizations who scrutinize even the slightest change in their sales figures and that then sends a message to them saying actually there is demand for a different type of product businesses then respond to those small shifts and they then produce products and services that are then much more accessible to the mainstream. Just today, actually, I've just bought a zero waste converter for my desk. So it's made of wooden and it turns my desk into a standing desk. And mm -hmm. so it's made of wood, no plastic anywhere, carbon neutral delivery. But then it was sent inside packaged with loads of plastic. And I was absolutely devastated. I've gone to all this effort to try and buy something zero waste and it was packaged in horrible plastic. And I, mm. I took 30 seconds to email the company that I had bought that from. And I got an email back saying, thank you so much for calling me out on this. You know, I can do better. I'm going to spend all of this afternoon researching sustainable alternative forms of packaging. And that for me was just really exciting. So I was like, that's five seconds out of my day. And that's now had a knock-on effect. So I think we must not believe that myth that what we do is not true because we have more power than we recognize and we've just got to start exercising it now and my sort of mm. overall philosophy on all of this is that billions of small actions got us into the climate crisis in the first place and those billions of actions took place over a very short period of time and so surely by the same logic 
billions of small actions over an equally short period of time can help get us out of this mess. Mm -hmm. It's fascinating that there's actually a connection between having food waste and the interest to be a good provider. For example, for parents, the imagery of a stocked fridge and always being (laughs) able to offer the children a variety of goods that has something to do with, on the one side, being wealthy. And so food waste is connected to a sense of being wealthy and living in a sense of abundance and of being a good provider. All of our behavior comes back to how we have evolved and comes back to what is now very instinctive behavior. I've spent millions of years evolving in a very scarce environment. And so we survived by hoarding food and also by sharing food, which is why wanting to open your fridge and see abundance on a physiological level makes you feel safe. And again, I think we're going to really struggle to try and change that hardwiring. And what instead we're trying to do is to tap into the other bit of hardwiring, which is if you've got too much, then do what is instinctive, which is to share it. And as I say, the reason why people don't share at the moment is because we don't live with our family. We don't live with our friends. We don't know our local community. And the Early app is working really, really hard through building out user profiles and verification and lots of kind of social capital around your Olio profile to turn strangers into trusted neighbours. And everybody, given a choice of throwing perfectly good food in the bin or giving it to a trusted neighbour, would choose to give it to a trusted neighbour. When we look at food and food waste, we also need to always think, look at food security, right? I also see that in myself, but it's quite apparent that people are very sensitive when it comes to any sign that this food item may not be as good as it should be. And it comes down even to sort of off if this individual package has a bit of a dent in it. Even if it doesn't affect the food quality, this item is likely to be left on the shelf. How have you encountered the issue of the fear of disgust, the fear of uh, eating something that wasn't handled right when launching Oleo? So it is very instinctive for us as humans to pick through the food that's on offer and select the best. We, we all do that. We're, we're not even aware that we're doing it. And that is what happens. Mm. And that is what then results in the sort of quote-unquote ugly fruit and veg uh, and other items being left behind. Now, what we find on the Olio app, though, is exactly the opposite in that there is no shortage of people who want to pop out the house and pick up some free food, some food that just half an hour, an hour ago had a price tag on it. Plus, they get to feel awesome. that They're doing their bit to save the planet. Plus, they get to meet members of their local community. So for us, from day one, there's never been any shortage of demand for the food on Olio. Like well over 80 to 90% of the food coming on the app gets picked up. Our number one challenge is encouraging people to take that leap of faith and to bother to add their own spare food to the app in the first place. And the reason why that's a barrier for people is, one, I think we've very much normalized throwing away food. We've become anesthetized to it. It's just become like a reflex to us nowadays. And our culture sort of endorses that. Just watch TV and you'll see food and films. You'll see food being thrown away the whole time. But also we do have a slight challenge, the kind of you know middle class problem, which is that people will think, well, I wouldn't go and pick this up. Or they think, well, who would mm-hmm. really want... To my two lemons, or who would really want three tins of out-of-date soup? 
again, it's quite instinctive. If you don't want something, we tend to assume that no one would like it. And that just couldn't be further from the truth. There's that expression that we all hear the whole time, you know, one person's trash is another person's treasure. And that is so true, whether it be food or fashion or anything else, someone will want pretty much everything that you've got to give away. So we are just constantly sort of banging the drum, encouraging people to give it a go, to add their first listing. Once they've done that, they love it. They have a great experience. They're like, wow, my item was so popular. I had a couple of people request it. I got to meet a neighbor. I feel like a rock star because I've given something for free to a neighbor and I've saved the planet. It feels really, really good. So our number one challenge is just getting them to take that first step. Wow, yes. I got a little bit of goosebumps right now. (laughs) So you said that anyone wanting to do my job should begin by fixing a problem in the world that really bothers you and then figuring out ways to fix it. What is an unmet problem in the food waste space where you think, why hasn't anybody addressed this with a good business model yet? Like, why isn't this already way more solved than it is right now? The first place, I think Olio is an obvious example of that. You know, people tell us the whole time, like, I can't believe this didn't exist. Why didn't anyone think of it before? Mm. The other place that I would go to actually would be onto the farms. So it is absolutely crazy. Roughly 30% of all food waste takes place kind of at the farm gate. And that is because it has sort of really, really strong cosmetic requirements around the produce will mean that an enormous amount of it gets discarded or never even harvested because it's just not worthwhile yeah. to harvest just a third of the field if that's all that meets meets the requirements. So I have to believe that we're going to get a lot, lot, lot better at redistributing food from the farm gate to make sure that it doesn't go to waste. I find this model is so... It has such a different approach compared to the others. And in an interview, you mentioned that it was quite a lot of work to do the fundraising. And you were saying, I'm quoting you, the hardest part of my day is pitching to investors. Sadly, it's still an incredibly male-dominated industry with relatively little interest in female-founded businesses or those who are solving community-oriented problems. And I would love to dive a bit more deep into the community-oriented topic. Do you feel that this kind of decentralized community-oriented business in itself is something that the current VC landscape just discounts as like, oh, you know, it's it's too fluffy, it's, it's not X, you know, what is it not enough? Uh, yes, sort of on the whole, I would be inclined to agree that the VC community completely underestimates the power of community-driven businesses. And I think the reason for that comes back to the point you made at the beginning, which is due to the lack of diversity in Mm -hmm. the VC industry. So we have found that when we pitch to female investors, they immediately get Olio. They understand the problem we're trying to solve, that enormous problem of food waste in the home. They understand why being part of a community can be so powerful and can feel so great. And so they Mm -hmm. immediately understand what we're trying to do and they get very excited by it. When we pitch to male investors, often they don't even understand the problem that we're trying to solve because they're very far removed from the issue of food in their own homes. And also, generally, we find that they have sort of less interest in and excitement about community-oriented businesses. And so the reason why we have had challenges unlocking fundraising comes down to the fact that there is a complete lack of diversity amongst the gatekeepers of capital in the VC industry. And that's borne out by the statistics as well. So in the UK, female founded businesses unlock roughly 1% 
of all VC funding. Male-founded businesses unlock 89% of VC funding and mixed teams get the remaining 10%. So it's a really, really significant problem. And also, whenever I talk about this issue, I'm always at pains to stress that this is a challenge that doesn't just affect female founders, it affects diverse founders of all varieties. Yeah, actually, it's quite funny whenever I see VCs and, oh, we have a new person in our team. And I'm like, okay, so he's going to be white. He'll have glasses. He'll have short hair (laughs) and he'll have like a specific face. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. If it is a female founder or a diverse founder, nine times out of 10, they are a junior member of the team. And I, I do yeah. think, you know, VC, VCs have made some efforts in recent years to increase the diversity of their teams, but it's all been at the junior level. And the problem is we are then pitching to these, I guess, diverse junior investors who love Olio, who want to make the investment. And then they then come up against their own investment committees, which are still very <laughs> pale, male and stale, who mm. look at them blankly and don't understand what we're trying to do. So we will only solve this problem when we have true diversity of investors who have check writing capabilities. Yeah. And the thing that really frustrates me about this is when I look out into the ecosystem of founders who are having a positive impact on the world, if they're in the climate crisis space, the tech for good space, I see such incredible diverse founders. And the problem is those diverse founders are not getting funding because of all these biases that exist in the VC world. And what that means is that we are shortchanging humanity because these Mm. are the founders who are tackling the biggest problems facing our species today. And unfortunately, they are the founders who are getting least access to capital. Tessa, if you would have 50 million in what businesses would you invest in? If you wouldn't be able to invest it in Olio, which would be a great (laughs) investment. (laughs) Yes, clearly. Um, I would invest in anything that is trying to solve the climate crisis. And if you wanted me to be more specific than that, anything that's trying to solve the problem of waste, because food waste is just one type of waste. Every single industry has endemic levels of waste, and we cannot continue to waste the world's resources in this way. And so I think anything that can sort of unlock waste would deliver an amazing return. Regarding food sustainability in agriculture, what is an unusual opinion that you hold that many people would disagree with? So I think a lot of people think that sort of technology is going to save the day. We're doing lots of kind of, you know, bioengineering and precision agriculture and cultured meats. And whilst I do think that all of those things are really important, I think we're overlooking the power of community and human beings and behavior change massively. And they don't necessarily have to cost as much money as a lot of this sort of engineering type approach. And I think the second bit that I would say linked to that as well is that I really believe that the sweet spot is going to be through sort of harnessing the power of mother nature. So I'm really, really interested in regenerative agriculture and that whole space, because from what I can gather, humanity discovered pesticides and fertilizer, and we stopped innovating. And what we've now got to do is really, really pick up the pace with regards to innovation in our food systems. And I think the sweet spot is where you take mother nature, technology and community. And that is where you can make change and transformation happen at scale. 
Oh, wonderful. Tessa, where and how can people connect with you? So the first thing I'd ask everybody to do is to download the Olio app and you can find us in the App Store and Google Play. Or if you search in any search engine for Olio, O-L-I-O, you'll find us. And then I am on Medium. I blog there and I'm also on Twitter. And on both of those, I'm at Tessa L.F. Clark with an E. Wonderful. Thank you for being on Red to Green, Tessa. Thank you for having me. Thanks for listening. I love, 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 love to hear from listeners. Let's connect. Find me on LinkedIn. My name is Marina Schmidt, M-A-R-I-N-A, Marina and Schmidt, S-C-H-M-I-D-T. Or simply look for Red to Green on LinkedIn and you will find me. Until next time, let's move the food industry from harmful to healthy, from polluting to sustainable, from red to green. 